When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk rough grouse, timber doodles, and timber markets with the Rough Grouse Society. Welcome back to the show for episode number 93. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. 
Download the Hunt app today and use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. Head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from Gumleaf USA. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight and Wing Shooter Elite over and unders, CZ has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com to see all of their shotgun offerings. And by Turnbull Restoration Company, the most recognized name in antique and vintage firearm restoration. Period correct metal finishes and custom reproductions of iconic firearms. Turnbull has been dedicated to the faithful and accurate restoration of classic American shotguns, rifles, and handguns for over 35 years. To find out more about the work that they do, head over to TurnbullRestoration.com. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Check out their kennels and other products today by visiting Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Mike from Alberta. Mike left us a review, and for that, we thank him. Project Upland t-shirt headed his way very soon. Anybody out there listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave the show a rating and leave us a review. We love those. Subscribe to our podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We do love to hear from our listeners. Email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one quick announcement today in honor of our guests from the Rough Grouse Society. If you're listening to this right away on the day that it launches which is Friday, February 28th. You have hours remaining to jump onto the Rough Grouse Society, Our Forest, Our Future campaign. Head over to ruffed.org. That's R-U-F-F-E-D.org. Check out the membership drive they have going. You can get a hat, a really cool t-shirt, and a membership to Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, the leader in healthy forest conservation. Join the movement today. And with that, we're going to lead right into the introduction to today's show. We are joined by two employees and a member of the Rough Grouse Society. The member being Forrest Jabot of Steigerwald Land Services. He is a timber industry analyst, along with Director of Conservation Policy for the Rough Grouse Society, Brent Rudolph, and the President and CEO and former guest of the podcast, Ben Jones. Today, we go very heavy on conservation, talking about healthy forests, and the role that timber markets play in creating and developing the habitat necessary for the birds that we all love. This is a very conservation-intensive episode. I hope you enjoy it, and if you take away anything from this, I hope you gain a further understanding and appreciation for the complex nature of the forest landscapes within this country and the expertise that the gentlemen that I'm joined by today have in working alongside these markets to create healthy forests, 
and diverse forest landscapes that benefit the wildlife that we appreciate and of course love to pursue. All right, with all that said, let's jump into today's episode by welcoming into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Forrest Jabot of Steigerwald Land Services and of the Rough Grouse and American Woodcock Society, Brent Rudolph and Ben Jones. All right, gentlemen. Well, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Project Upland Podcast. We are here in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. My, right. first, my first time here, and we have spent the day basically hearing a lot about rough grouse as we are we were participating in the Rough Grouse Symposium put on by the Wisconsin chapter of the Wildlife Society. I consider myself an outsider looking in. There's a lot of industry professionals here, wildlife professionals here. It was a great opportunity for me to come in and learn about rough grouse and see how the professionals talk about rough grouse and the work that they're doing every day. I thought that was very cool. One of the headlining sponsors of the event was the Rough Grouse Society, and we are joined by some guests today. I'm going to introduce them. I'm going to start to my left here with a new to the Project Upland podcast friend of mine, Forrest and I have done some hunting. Introduce yourself, Forrest, and tell us a little bit about what you do and what brings you here today. Sure. Yeah. Forrest Jabot. I'm a forest analyst, so I'm, I work within the timber industry. Um, really interested and excited to be here today. I, par- I participated um, in, in the, the development of the uh, Wisconsin uh, Rough Grouse Management Plan and um, wanted to come here today to learn more about where the birds um focuses here in the state of Wisconsin, collaborate, meet up with some folks, and um, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's a detail that's it's not necessarily on our outline to talk about the Wisconsin Draft Management Plan, but again, as you mentioned, of course, you were heavily involved in that, as were the Rough Grouse Society and John Steigerwalt was on the committee with you. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll dive into that a little bit, but uh, next guest, uh, also uh, with the Rough Grouse Society, Brent, introduce yourself, tell us what you do for RGS, and what brings you here today? Yeah, Brent Rudolph. I'm the Chief Conservation and Legislative Officer with the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. So I oversee our on-the-ground programs and staff of biologists and foresters and uh, coordinate our our legislative and policy initiatives for the society um, at the fa- state and federal and whatever level is needed to kind of make the impact we're looking to, to make. Um so I'm here primarily from our involvement with the Rough Grouse Symposium. It was the, the concept came together a little while back to try and bring together folks from kind of the upper Midwest broadly um, to share some highlights on research, on policy initiatives, um, and then have, out, have some breakout sessions to look at in the region here. Um, what are some of the top research needs? What are some of the top management needs that we could be working across segments, NGOs, um, government, universities, industry, all the folks that touch and are, are and are affected by grouse and grouse conservation um, to kind of have a, a unified vision and agenda moving forward for how we can be collaborating and ma- maximizing the impact we can have collectively. And last but certainly not least, former guest on the Project Upland podcast. Ben, you know, you're the first time, the first time we ever did a Project Upland podcast interview in person. Is that right? In Pittsburgh that time. Yep. You can see my my setup has advanced Mm -hmm. since then. 
That's probably nearly a year to the day. That was March last year. That was like darn near a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. In Pennsylvania. So uh, the voice you hear uh, probably probably may be familiar to folks at this point. You've been kind of making the podcast rounds a little bit. You're a popular guy. People want to talk to you. Rough grouse is a popular topic in the upland hunting world in the last couple of years. Ben Jones, president and CEO of RGS, thanks for joining us again. Good to be here. Glad to be at the... The Grouse Symposium, as Brent mentioned, has started coming together a few months back. And um, Dr. Jason Riddle here at uh, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point contacted us, and um, we're more than happy to sponsor it and be a part of it and be here uh, working with everybody. So I mentioned that, again, I, I somewhat feel like an outsider here, although it was open to the public, and, and I... I myself, along with a, a couple of other passionate bird hunters, and we were interested in coming here today, but I get in here and I see this event. Is it unusual for the rough grouse to be sort of the flagship species topic of conversation at an event like this? I'm not familiar with Wildlife Society events or chapters. I mean, is that unique right now? No, I think when you have, there's a topic that's timely and of concern that you can, um, get those topics that kind of lead a symposium as part of like a wildlife society or society of American foresters meeting. So, um, it's not necessarily the norm, but it definitely speaks to how seriously everyone is taking rough grouse conservation and making sure that, um, that we're charting a good path forward and that everybody's working together. One of the key points that Brent brought out there was you've got, state agencies, you've got academia, you've got us in the NGO world, <clears throat> you've got people working in uh, the forest industry, you've got a bunch of students that are the upcoming generation of conservation. So it really brings to light to me that there are a lot of people taking uh, concerns with rough grouse populations seriously. So that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the room was packed. I mean, the room was packed full it was. of people that were engaged intrigued and obviously invested i mean by the by the presentations and and the questions that got asked today you could tell there was a lot of people that were taking this stuff very seriously which again from me the outsider's perspective it was really cool to see and i'm i appreciate having the opportunity to come in and and listen to these professionals speak about rough grouse and rough grouse habitat and management it was very cool um we touched on the was a topic of the presentation today, the rough grouse, the Wisconsin draft management plan. I wonder if maybe we should just spend a minute or two talking about that because it was something that came about over the last year and RGS had some input in it. Boris, you did as well. I mean, being that you were on the committee, do you want to talk a little bit about just sort of what you guys were tasked to do and the process a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, rough grouse did not have a management plan in the state of Wisconsin. So that's something that's pretty, pretty eye-opening. Yep. So it's such an important species to our state, our hunting heritage. Um, so my my role was representing the industry side, I guess the the private landowner side, to help bring some pers- some perspective to that planning process, um, to the to that connection with how the habitat is connected with the industry the the act of cutting and severing trees and it's you know we we are in a state where we have such uh, relatively robust markets and um, trying to bring that all to, together help people un- understand those dynamics um, 
was was what I was hoping that I could at least be be there as a sounding board. Yeah. 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 So the the plan didn't exist, and you know we've probably covered a lot of the, these the reasons for mm-hmm. the plan coming into existence on this podcast before, but. Again, the concerns over rough grouse populations that have played out over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. listeners may may or may not be familiar, but getting that plan in place was, in essence, the state of Wisconsin saying, "Hey, we need to have you know this is a valued bird species. It's a it's a species that we're concerned about, and it needs to have a, a management plan in place." Rough Grouse Society played a role. Brent, mm-hmm. were you were you Ben or are you guys involved in all? A couple of years, it was. Um so going on two years ago when there were some proposed changes to season length that came in last minute and when we're asked to comment on such things we always say "Well, what does the science tell us what what do the management plans tell us and um we looked here in wisconsin and there wasn't a management plan and so we felt it was really important as a first step in addressing impacts from habitat loss and West Nile and all these other things that you have, this framework that a management plan provides. So it's not just a management plan, it's kind of a bibliography too of all the current science. What's Mm. the current state of our knowledge about rough grouse, populations, seasons, what all this means, and then a framework to make decisions about things like major habitat initiatives or season lengths or bag limits. Now you have this structured process for it. And uh, it was one of our first comments there uh, when the proposed season changes came in uh, a little while ago. It was one of those opportunities to kind of grab a silver lining out of a a situation that was kind of fraught with a little bit of tension and conflict where the Natural Resources Board was trying to be responsive to a disappointing season to some of the unknowns, the concerns they kept hearing about, wanting to respond and show they took the issue seriously. But as Ben pointed out, it, it it's an awkward situation to be in, especially using an emergency process to make right. rule changes when you didn't have the time to really sit back and look at what do we know, what we expect from this change. We took that as an opportunity, and many others did as well, to say, you know, the agency would be in a better situation to be able to respond if you have not only some ideas about what should trigger the need to make a change, but how you'd monitor the results of that change and be more systematic going forward. Agencies you know, have a big responsibility to play to set all these regulations, but it could be a huge amount of time and effort and resources. And if you're constantly chasing after some response, um, not really <coughs> understanding what impact it's going to have or constantly changing it, you know, changing it so frequently you can't measure kind of that response, then yeah. you're not making best use of folks' time. So that was a good good opportunity for them to pull back and put efforts together, engage folks in helping shape this plan that will guide 10 years of management. And that's probably why this rose to the forefront, Nick, as you asked about why this was on a t- one of a topics for um, – right to be held in conjunction with the Wildlife Society. The Wildlife Society, for folks that don't know, is a professional organization of professional wildlife managers to join. And so their um, regular chapter meeting will be tomorrow to have a little wider variety of topics, but they saw an opportunity to kind of dovetail this symposium with that event and tap into folks that will be here for uh, for those reasons, as yep. well as draw a little bit more broadly than they often do at a typical meeting. Yep. Yep, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's been... I mean, it's been interesting, absolutely, to follow along as a as a bird hunter and a member of the Rough Grouse Society. And I'm this is my neck of the woods. You know, I hunt in Minnesota and Wisconsin to to really see sort of the the ride that we've been on as far as like 
what we're finding out with various stresses on the birds and what's actually going on, what people are seeing and reporting. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of awareness raised around rough grouse and rough grouse populations, which I think is a positive thing. And I think the more that the industry professionals like you gentlemen get involved and measure, study, test, research these things, the more we're going to know, which hopefully we're better off we're going to be. And having a plan in place is, is a pretty good way to get that started. Let's talk about, we're on the topic of habitat. Let's talk about the current status of rough grouse habitat. And I want to set the stage. Ben, we talked about this the first time we had you on the podcast, but I want to set the stage a little bit as far as talking about healthy forests, diverse forest landscapes versus what we see in a lot of areas where rough grouse live as far as an even age forest. Can you set that up for us a little bit? Yes. So uh, rough grouse are uh, a habitat specialist in that they make use of a lot of different um, diverse forest age classes. And of course, the young forest gets a lot of attention. Uh, That is where we find them most often in the fall when we're hunting them. But um, they also make use of different age classes of forests throughout the year. They often nest in older stands. They'll often raise broods in middle-aged stands. Uh, they're never far from that protective cover of the young forest. But uh, overall, good rough grouse habitat is really diverse forest habitat. And that's not just the case for rough grouse, but uh, a lot of other species too, many of, many of which we hunt and some that we don't. So when you have forests that are unnaturally even-aged, as we do across much of rough grouse range right now because of circumstances from that occurred give or take 20 years of 1900 when most of our forests were indiscriminately cut and this kicked the conservation movement into gear we ended up with national forest system millions and tens of millions of acres of other public lands as well but today uh it's kind of like the the belly of a snake that just ate you've got this big glut of forest that is unnaturally single aged at around 100 years old and natural factors that would have created different ages of forest we've largely removed them from the landscape a large one being fire but um things like beavers even migratory herds of bison and elk that we can't even fathom right now that we're impacting those landscapes Uh, We've completely removed all those disturbance factors. So the way that we can uh, mimic some of those natural disturbances today is through responsible forest management. And we've learned a lot since 1900. And um, forestry became a a profession, and we have forestry professionals here. We know how to sustainably manage, and um, that's how we can maintain rough grouse and other forest wildlife habitat today is through responsible, sustainable forest management. Regarding the inventory of our forest, I feel like I hear it enough because I'm, I talk to you guys a lot. And <laughs> I, I mean, again, I, I hear this stuff enough yeah. where like, I, I feel like I know, I know that it's the truth. You're pretty much but, an expert now. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a podcast, so I'm an That's expert, right? right? <laughs> but what mechanisms or, and then forest, I'm curious, you know, you'll, you'll have some insight into this. How do we know and assess like the inventory of our forest? And I, and I imagine that's going to be different public versus private, but because I know like the national forest, they have, 
you know, they have in their plans in place, they want to have a certain percentage of young forests and a certain percentage of old forests. How do we inventory that stuff and how do we assess where we're at as far as age of forests? Well, actually, there's a broad scale grid method uh, that's done by the U.S. Forest Service on all lands, okay. private and public lands, uh, continuous forest inventory and analysis. It's called FIA. But these are permanent plots that are gridded out across the landscape that the Forest Service does on a cycle. Is this a five, eight year cycle? Five, sometimes shorter. Yeah. State dependent. And they're visiting all these sites and recording forest conditions. So across the entire nation, we kind of have this grid that gives us a snapshot glimpses into uh, what's going on with our forest. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an awesome tool. Um, it's then, and, and like, and like Ben said, it's a grid that is, that, that captures information on every type of forest land ownership. So that's really powerful data. Um, we know a lot about our public forests, um, but it's tough to capture and understand what's happening on private forests, mm-hmm. especially the non-industrial private forests, those small forest landowners, those average forest landowners. In a lot of states, like in the Lake States, it's between 20 and 40 acres. Yep. And to understand that um, that makeup, that age class dis- distribution on those smaller private lands as compared to our larger uh public ownerships, let's say our county forests in the state of Wisconsin or Minnesota or Michigan that are quite actively managed, we can start to understand a, a, a picture and find, you know, find areas that um, may be challenged with age class diversity. And we know through FIA data that private lands generally are, are challenged there. So um, that's one tool. And yeah. industry uses it to do research, to understand what's the availability of wood now and into the future, uh, species, um, species transitions, which is happening here in the Lake States. Um, we're, we're losing some species, our early successional species, and some species are winners, like um, red maple and white, and white pine. Those are species that are winning specifically in the state of Wisconsin. And that's through forest succession mm-hmm. that we are, well, jack pine, birch, um, as, aspen, are, we're, we're, we're losing those species, but we're gaining in others that can do better in shaded environment. Sure. Interesting. So I, I want to try to understand, I'm, I'm curious if there's a parallel here. Our, our friends at Pheasants Forever, Ben, they talk about the farm bill and CRP because of its importance to pheasants and other, obviously other wildlife species, pollinators and everything. The farm bill allows for a certain amount of acres to be in CRP. Pheasants Forever, I believe, I'm just going off the top of my head, I believe they, they, you know, they would love to see 40 million acres in CRP. The number, the last I heard Whit Fosberg comment on it, somewhere in like the 25 million acres, that sort of thing. So I want to take that and, and talking about forests, is there a number or a percentage? I understand like it's probably apples and oranges, but is there a level of age distribution, whether it's young forest, middle-aged forest, is there something, some goal that we would love to see, RGS would love to see on the landscape, we're not there now? How can we comprehend it and and figure out, like, what's the goal that we're trying to get to? Because I know from talking to you, Ben, that it's not just cut everything and cut it all now. That's that's not what we're trying to do. Yes. The biggest thing is that on a given land base, you want to have the mix. Yeah. That is really the important part. And you can talk about rule of thumb for 
uh, percentages and acreages, but you really want to make sure that you have a good mix. So I'll give you an extreme example. You could say you'd like to have 15% young forest and 15 to 25% old forest, and then an even distribution of percentages of all the forest ages in between. Yep. But it will do you no good in Wisconsin if that 15% of young forest is all crammed into southeastern Wisconsin. So on any individual management unit, you really the percentage that you're going for is really not as important as the mix and making sure that you've got young forest next to old forest next to middle-aged forest. Yeah. And that was something that you talked about in, mm-hmm. in your address today. And actually, I felt like you gave a really cool example. You, listeners probably don't know this. I, I found this out from, again, hanging out with you. But you spent, you did your doctoral research. <laughs> you lived with rough grouse for basically five years. Yes. It's 365, 24-7. <laughs> That's in, right. in a tent or what? A couple of leaf years must have been in there too. I, so I had a mama grouse take me in. I was brooding <laughs> under him. Do you consider yourself like the Jane Goodall of rough grouse? Or? That's it, man. You got it. <laughs> yeah. But so the example that you painted earlier, though, you had a uh, a work area where mm-hmm. you're monitoring rough grouse, right. and you had it broken down into three segments, and one segment was different than the other two. Mm-hmm. And what was it that you found that was different? Yeah, it was about a 10,000-acre area, and it was divided up into three watersheds that were kind of distinct. And when we were looking at grouse home ranges, that amount of area that grouse occupy throughout the seasons, we noticed that one of those areas had much smaller home ranges. And that suggested that the birds were meeting all their biological needs in a smaller area, which as a wildlife manager, you want to shoot for that because if they're spending their whole life and meeting all their needs within 180 acres versus having to travel over 400 acres to meet all their needs. The more they travel, the more they're exposed, the higher their predation rates are. So when you find this sweet spot where you've got your habitat configuration just right so that those home ranges are nice and compact and those grouse are getting all their needs met in a small area, man, that's bingo. That's that's right where you want to be. And so that's what we found on one of those watersheds. We had very small home ranges. And when we dug into that habitat, it wasn't the size of the forest stands. It wasn't the percentage of young, middle, and old. It was just the spatial pattern across that landscape. The young forest was well interspersed, and interspersion is the key term, well interspersed with those other ages of forest across that watershed. And that was right on the money for grouse. In in that scenario, we're talking about it's kind of a small area, but the mosaic pattern, the healthy, healthy mix, diverse mix, the mosaic pattern that those are terms that I heard used by people to presenting today. You know, that's, yeah. that's common knowledge. I think amongst wildlife matters, maybe not as common as, as you guys would like it to be. I'm not sure, but how do we, how do you, how do you do that kind of habitat work on a landscape level? You know, how do you make that kind of make that kind of habitat across large areas you know early work that was done with rough grouse you saw the checkerboard Mm -hmm. pattern that was you know gordon gully and early worked on in northern minnesota and if you think geometrically that's like a really the most efficient way to intersperse a whole bunch of things together make a checkerboard 
However, it's kind of an artificial landscape too, without these irregular shapes. So what we're tending more toward now is in more of an ecological basis to make those, it's like a little tornado touchdown. And if you see blowdown, they're not squares or they're not circles where you had a wind disturbance. They're irregular shaped and they move in and out. And just that in and of itself increases your interspersion of those disturbed areas with areas that weren't disturbed. So we have to work with the topography. We work with water features. And here we're talking about timber harvesting logistics. Um, you've got to be aware of erodible soils and really cautious there. So we really kind of fit this in with the land. And it's really exciting as a forester to look at a piece of property and each one is absolutely unique. Yeah. And I said this morning, you know, there's a lot of science to this, but there's art too. Mm -hmm. And there isn't only one single answer on a given hundred or thousand acres. You get to be a bit of an artist in how you make that mosaic happen. But there are strict guidelines within that you have to operate within uh, to make sure you're tending to water quality and uh, erosion and those things. Those are the BMPs that I heard so much about today. Yeah, BMPs are best management practices. That There was actually some really good discussion about that near riparian areas. There's mm -hmm. BMPs, some folks can treat them as hard and fast rules when really they're meant to be best management practices or guidelines. Um, so there's they focus on things like riparian areas that obviously in a place where you have a steep slope leading up to the water's edge, if you're denuding it of all vegetation, you're going to have erosion problems. If you've got a high-quality trout stream that you need to maintain with, within certain temperature to, to be a, a productive area and you remove the adjacent overhanging vegetation, you may have temperature issues there. But uh, actually, one of the folks made an excellent comment saying the land writes the management plan. I don't. It's you got to be in a frame of mind to say what is the landowner's objective and what can I operate within the conditions on the ground here? And if you treat a, a BMP or a guideline as an ironclad rule, you're going to miss some opportunities to, pro to provide good habitat, um, to potentially have better opportunity to meet landowner needs, to have a sustainable harvest of the resource, all the above, instead of just falling into a easy, simple rule of thumb that really doesn't meet the needs um, in the true sense when you're out on the ground looking at how it should be applied. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about the, the art form to forestry. And then later on, my buddy, Kevin Shepard, who, who you were referencing, yeah. Brent for the American Bird Conservancy, he was talking about how, you know, he's, he's tasked with putting a certain kind of habitat on the landscape, but how he's going to accomplish that. It's more the art form, not so much the textbook approach to the checkerboard, that sort of thing. And I mean, that's where, this stuff is complex. I mean, it may be, we can make it simple in our minds and say we need a healthy, diverse forest, but putting that on the landscape takes some thought and well, every example is different. Every piece of property is different. There's also some common sense to it, though. I'd be interested to hear forest thoughts as well. I mean, we can talk about how grouse and other wildlife need diverse forests and it's about the juxtaposition and the interspersion and all that stuff too, but it's also common sense that, you know, today's old forest is your future young forest mm -hmm. if it's sustainably managed. Um, as Ben mentioned earlier, early stages where everything was just clear cut and completely over exploited, um, that actually in the short term became a good thing for lots of wildlife. Sure. All that regenerating forest, you look at other species like deer that boomed at that time, 
And then they bust later when it all that habitat becomes old at the same time. Yeah. And it's not good for a business or an industry either, you know, to liquidate everything all at once might seem like a great opportunity to make some cash. But if you're trying to sustain a business, sustain an economy over time, it's just not going to work. So you have to build into your common sense, providing sustainable amount of habitat or sustainable mm-hmm. amount of, of uh, product for an industry to depend upon to have that be um, a well-thought-out, well-planned cycle. Yeah. yeah. Brent, you had mentioned, I think in your talk today, that you know use science as, as, as an opportunity, not as a limiting factor. And I think that that happens a lot. And like you said, sometimes... Um, especially when you've got governmental regulations or you've got you know tax incentive programs or, or other factors that require these sustainable important practices um, you know use use the use common sense and um, you know industry I guess a lot of people would think that industry wants to go out there and take as much timber as fast as they possibly can and bring it into the marketplace um, but from, you know, let's look at the timber landowners side of the spectrum. Um, an oversupply of wood doesn't help, help them. It just helps the mills. And, you know, presently in, in the lake states, there's, there's, um, the mills are controlling the marketplace and it's, it's cyclic. It's like any commodity. So, um, the reality is if you're a timber landowner, a large timber landowner, you, you'd rather not be bringing a lot of wood to the marketplace. You don't want to see all that wood move to, move to the marketplace. And if you're a landowner, you're going to want to manage your, your land as an asset. You don't want to harvest it all now, make it, make it one dimensional, one age class for other reasons than birds. Although, you know, cr- creating, you know, multiple age classes helps all these critters, a lot of time industry is doing it without even thinking about it because of the fact is they want timber, uh, they want trees to be on the stump in 10, 15 years from now if they're going to liquidate that that asset. If all that value is taken today, um, what's that asset worth 10 years into the future? So um, I think, you know, industry helps birds like rough grouse, early successional species, a lot of the times, just from the function of being prudent business people, they are they're they're managing those assets, you know, the managing forest types as as they should be managed on a sustainable basis. But um, to think that they want all that that cash that cash now up front, probably not not the case in most instances. Is there a crossroads? You know, before I get to that, talking about sustainable. I feel like as a hunter, you know, oftentimes hunting culture and talking about the good old days, oftentimes you can trace back somebody's version of the good old days to some kind of a bubble in like what you talked about, Brent, when everything was logged over and then, you know, or like in New England when it was all cleared and farmed and then the farms abandoned and then that bubble kind of led to maybe the golden days of New England grouse hunting. So as we move forward, it's okay that that bubble happened. We need to recognize that and be aware of what's realistic and what's mm-hmm. sustainable into the future and try to try to minimize these major peaks and valleys and keep things sustainable. Forrest, is there an intersection or a crossroads where managing for wildlife habitat and these private, because I mean, you're, you're privy to very large owners of, of timber. I mean, Right. clients and people that own large tracts of timber that there's a lot of wildlife on that land. So what point in the conversation does wildlife enter and you know where is that intersection if it exists? I mean, just tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that. 
Well, I, I think in a lot of cases, it's, 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 it's commonly at, at the, the uh, table. Um, f- the forest is not just trees. Yeah. It's a full ecosystem. Um, the animals and plants and everything that lives there, work, they're working to, 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 together, and the decisions that are made have to consider them. Um, there's a lot of things that, that do force that, that hand too. Um, it could be, uh, tax incentive programs, um, other, other regulations within states that, that, you know, might push people towards considering it, um, more than what they may have otherwise. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a very competitive marketplace. We're in a global economy and, um, timberland owners, we're talking large timberland owners that own what would be previously con- considered those paper company land bases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, um, are trying to find ways to monetize not only the, uh, trees, but other assets in the forest. And one of those could be conservation easements. So when you enter a conservation easement, a lot of these large blocks, um, have wildlife focus, um, Northwestern sands, uh, ecotype. There's a, a large, uh, forest there that, that, that's in sand barrens. And, um, you know, it's, it's, Part of that conservation easement on that prop property has focus for sharp sharp tail grouse, and it's it's a red pine and natural jack pine forest. But um, you know, there's there's tweaks to the management there that um, the state saw opportunity with, the landowner saw opportunity with. So um, not not truly a forest species of maybe an edge species and prairie species um, is being is being you know is being you know considered and focused. And there's objectives for acres. In, um, in in young forest and and in, and in, and in openings that are tied to that asset. So um, you know, if there's like you said, the, you know, there's this there's this intersection, and I would say that um, that intersection is you know is commonly is commonly met, and there's a lot of crossing that's going on there um, between the timber industry and the and wildlife people too. You say conservation easement. I think I have an idea in my mind of what that is, but lay it out for me. Is that, what's the win-win? Is it tax break for landowner to allow public access or how does it work? Yeah. So in the state of Wisconsin and other states, there's different programs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, that tie up not, not not only state monies, but federal monies. And those, those conservation easements are quite diverse. Um, one that's commonly, uh, used in the state of Wisconsin, the, uh, Knowles, um, trust essentially is, um, is, you know, typically is, is, is looked at to try to lock up more land for public access and recreation. Um, so it's essentially a purchase by the state. So the state takes dollars instead of going out and buying full, full price for timberland. Um, they're going to buy conservation easement, which could be valued at a third or a quarter of what the real estate value is of those lands. So they can extend their dollars by investing in conservation easements, locking up large blocks, 20, 30, 40, 100,000 acres at a time. What would have otherwise taken a lot more dollars to buy those lands outright, but they're leaving, the, but they're locking them up for access. And then not only that, but they're working forest conservation easements. So, Timber management is part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Timber management is still there. You can sever trees. So th- those are the type of uh, programs that um, I think should be highlighted more. And, and those and those dollars can work so hard for um, for our, our forest wildlife species. Does yeah, that, so I'm does, not as familiar with the specifics in Wisconsin, but the basic concept behind the easement is someone basically sells the development right. rights. Yep. So they say, I, I'm not going to build subdivisions or malls on this. 
uh, an entity purchases that right for them, so they get compensated for the loss, essentially, in some way of being able to develop it that way. But in these instances, they can retain the opportunity to, for it to be a working forest. <laughs> and in the future, because, again, just conceptually, if you're going in as an agency taxing someone, if they can't develop their land, it's not worth as much. It's taxed at a lesser exactly. value. Now, if they right. can't develop their land because there's a wetland on, there's restrictions and other things, that affects the value and the tax they pay. But if you say, I don't have the option to develop this property, it's also valued less in a certain way because of that. Sure. But still very valuable to that owner and production productive for what they're doing with it to sustain a, an industry on. We have to approach this whole thing really aware of what's going on with market forces. And you brought up the farm bill earlier and CRP. And Nick, I think you've seen this, that pheasant populations across the core of their range really depend on how many acres are in CRP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that is absolutely market driven. Mm -hmm. It's driven by the price of commodity markets. And if you have uh, corn is, is really hot, and acres are coming out of CRP, that's Im impacting that conservation cover and, and ringneck populations. The same is true on the forest side. And so several things with the easements, and Brent mentioned working forests, this is kind of this idea that if a landowner has a piece of ground and they're getting a return on their investment through tax breaks or conservation easements or harvesting some timber for sale, then they're more likely to be able to keep that land in forest cover as opposed to developing that land because they can't afford to keep it as forest. So this idea of working forests and embracing timber markets and conservation easements and all these things, so it makes it viable for people to keep that land in forest. And that's good for all of us. Even if I can never hunt that piece of ground, because wildlife are dispersing there, mm -hmm. they're raising young there, those grouse broods then are flying out into the landscape. Uh, so that's actually for the common good too, even though you may not be able to set foot right. on that piece of property. And the intersection with wildlife, we know from surveys here in Wisconsin, pretty much across the board where this work has been done, that over 80% of landowners put wildlife enjoying wildlife, wildlife viewing, and or hunting, 80% plus put that as a top reason for owning that ground that they have. Yeah. So we have a real opportunity to be able to communicate about habitat with landowners through the wildlife message, which, I mean, that's us. That's our bailiwick and RGS, yeah. talking about forest wildlife and forest management. Yeah, you and Forrest segued the conversation nicely. I wanted to turn it towards markets because... I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm a, in a previous life, I was a finance guy. So when Ben starts talking about timber markets and stuff, my ears perk up and I, I appreciate that. So exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. And then, then you throw a guy like Forrest into the mix. Who's, who's super savvy on that kind of stuff. It's, it makes for fun conversation, but help me understand because I, when I think about markets, like you suggested, again, markets are driving wildlife habitat. So at times as, as just a hunter, uh, conservationist, I feel almost helpless, right? Because it's these, these markets are driving, are making the major differences at the end of the day. So what can be done about it? And is it just being involved, like you like to say, Ben, being involved in the con conversation when those things are happening and taking place, we have to be at the table. 
Oh, that's the key. And I think you pointed it out. And, you know, in this society, uh, things are going to be driven by markets. And if we figure how to harness those market forces for good, which for us, for good is for wildlife mm -hmm. and open areas and conservation, then it works out. And the true meaning of conservation that Gifford Pinchot created when he started this whole movement was wise use of resources because he was coming up against major market forces that were pushing hard against him. You had manifest destiny full on with expansion. You had the timber barons. These were the most powerful people in the world. Mm -hmm. And Gifford Pinchot figured out how to sell the idea that conserving these lands, that protecting these lands was actually key to the sustainable wealth and identity of our country. Yeah. And it was only by embracing those markets and steering them in the right direction that we now have the 190 million acre national forest system among tens, hundreds of millions of other public lands that followed the same model. Right. Again, it's, it's fascinating how... You know, complex it can be and how many how many different factors are driving what's creating wildlife habitat on a daily basis and brent i mean you're you're you cover things from the policy side what what are you seeing as far as where this conversation's at right now yeah what, what things are make, keeping you busy good transition and i think i want to i want to reflect back on something you said that as a hunter and a conservationist recognizing that markets drive so much of what you're experiencing mm -hmm whether the habitat's good or not, whether it's sustainably regenerated on the landscape or not, you said that makes you, feel, or it can make you feel helpless. Right. And I think that's a trap that we, that all of us often can fall into. We want to find the things that we can absolutely control. Correct. So the things we can absolutely control is, you know, hinge cutting some trees on my property and setting up my little deer lane and so forth. Mailing my we, membership check into RGS. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> control, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you life, do that right. on a regular basis, and we yeah. appreciate that. But um, that is a high level of control with a very small zone of influence. Mm -hmm. um, and many of those things, you know, wildlife lands, game lands, and other things can fall into that trap too, planting certain annual crops and creating certain conditions that might draw wildlife there and give you a hunting experience, you know, or interaction with wildlife in some way that you wouldn't have, but it's not affecting the landscape. So thinking about, again, throughout history, things that happened in this nation's history that drove folks to tap into those natural resources and completely overexploit them, mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't something that an individual person chose. These were these big sweeping forces that impacted our natural resources. But Forrest to comment, one of the things I mentioned earlier is I see the role of science should be increasing the options, not constraining them. And there's a disturbing trend I see sometimes where folks try and kind of weaponize science mm -hmm. to go to a policymaker, to go to a natural resources commission or natural resources board or Congress and say, it is wrong for you to do this because my science you know, tells you that. It, it doesn't. You know, if if a public policymaker's goal is to achieve a certain outcome, then your science might be solid enough to say you're highly unlikely to achieve that if you make this decision. But the decisions, what we're trying to do as a society overall, is much more broad than that. So to get back to your comment about markets, there are policy initiatives that can go in place. We hear more about subsidies and we hear more about tariffs and yep. other things. Yep. 
that drive markets and drive global influences. And I'm not at all an expert on projecting that, but those are legitimate options available to look at how markets can be influenced. And that's something that we as individual hunters or conservationists can influence, but by coordinating together, by trying to be open and receptive, by not seeing well, industry is trying to achieve some economic objective and they don't care about wildlife and, oh, wildlife folks are unrealistic and we got to make a, a living off of our... I mean, we all need to be able to talk together and work and coordinate together better yep. to find a sustainable future for all of it, for wildlife, for our aesthetic values of our land, for our economic mm-hmm. values of our land. And that may sound very pie in the sky, but the bottom line is there are tools available at a policy level to influence some of these things, and we need to be thinking about them in a more sophisticated way um, instead of trying to zero in on that little microcosm of a mm-hmm. local place that you might be able to have a big impact on. Yeah, yeah, that that's a that's a great point, and and having those tools are is really important in in, in today's markets uh, they're global markets they're changing daily so being able to capture um, a specific market for a specific species for a, for a product that may line up with the with your forest um, the, with your management plan is really difficult I, I learned as as a young forester when I was working with small private landowners that I was always working on the edges. Um, either the landowner wanted to me to manipulate civil culture and science to the point in which they could do very little, but feel like they were doing something, or they were on the other side of the spectrum trying to do something that was on the and the borderline of uh, potentially a sustainable method. And and sometimes that was driven by economics or in, you know or situations that I I you know you couldn't fault the landowner. Um, but I found I was always working on the edges. So having a big toolbox and trying to meet. The, those objectives um, with with the markets at 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 hand is difficult. Um, so that's the importance of having the diversity of markets, a healthy marketplace. Um, Lake States has that. Uh, we can we can harvest pulp, paper, bolts. We're we're, we're producing OSB uh, special siding products that requires aspen. That the LP um, smart siding product, it's best built with aspen. They tried using southern pine. It just didn't work. So we have products here in the Lake States that are directly tied to rough grouse and young forest habitat that we want. So we want those markets to, to be here. So um, having two boxes that that give us the opportunity and the, the optionality to um, to harvest all the species and all the products um, is really special. Um, it's overlooked. It's it's taken for granted in the Lake States because most parts of the country, it just is not happening. A lot of those materials are being left in the woods or they're not performing um, the forest management that the, the, the land manager or, or biologist would like to otherwise see because it's just not economically viable. It's, it's not a for-profit venture. Mm-hmm. When you can be in a region like we have here where ev- almost every forest management situation and prescription is for profit while wow, you're you're blessed forest as best you can kind of through working with your clients and knowing what motivates them can you give us a sense of where the demands are currently for forest products because again i'll bring this back to kind of very simply i grew up in northern minnesota so i i, I can kind of spout off the story of all the mills that we had in northern minnesota which it's it's similar across the Great Lakes, but they were a lot driven by paper. Mm -hmm. And the rise of the digital age has 
negatively affected the markets for paper. And so I've heard about mill closures for a long time. Where are we right now as far as the demand for wood and products? Sure. And what kind of innovation is going to be needed to stir that up? Or is it performing well? You know what? It it's really performing. Um, it's performing decently. Okay. Um, and and there's a lot of cons- and I think it's it's more or less a um, it's a it's a misnomer too to think that our our markets are so tied to pulp and paper in the lake okay. states. I mean, it is a, it is a large component, but not for all species. Um, for sure. the for for the mixed hardwood species, our our, our maples, our ashes, our birch to some extent, um, those mixed hardwood forests, our northern hardwood forests, um, you know, those markets are probably most challenged by the pulp and paper industry. Um, but you know, the fact is, is those markets haven't dropped as far as what we like to think. Okay. But it, the fact is, is to make those products here is just really expensive. It's just tough to compete. Um, the hauling distance in the lake states is really far. It's, it's, it's five or six times further than other parts of the world. And that's just because our paper industry, you know, for example, in the state of Wisconsin, it, it, it came, it, it was built in central Wisconsin around the Wisconsin river. Because that all that material was pushed down the the watershed, and the reality is now these mills are in a place where the resource is far away. They're in the wrong spot mm-hmm. for them to be globally competitive. So that's really an issue. But more, you know, recent mills that have been placed where the resource is, um, creating other products like I had mentioned, LP and and others. Um, so really, the pulp and paper industry—let's call it that—but really, you know, we, we we saw those low-grade quality you know, logs on on trucks, uh, pulp sticks. There's a lot of terms for them. Um, a lot of times, they're not going to be made into pulp and paper. We could talk—I could talk for you know hours about the the uh, topic. But you know, one example to tie the global marketplace together is looking at saw logs, mm. and in the state of Wisconsin, hard maple uh, or sugar maple. And red oak are are just are two of our, our really uh, high quality species. They they have they have unique characteristics that occur in the lake states in in the way that they grow and the way that their wood looks that doesn't exist anywhere else. So they're highly valuable, and that marketplace is not only domestic but it's a global marketplace. And if we look at customer preference, if we go back to the mid '90s, hard maple was valued almost half of what red oak was. But we had a concern. We, then we had a, a consumer preference change. Homeowners wanted to see maple, and red oak was coming out of vogue. So what happened? All of a sudden, hard maple essentially took the place of red oak, like overnight, over a two or three year period. Mm-hmm. So that price trend just changed, and then that opened up the door for our northern hardwood forests. So that species was king. And now red oak has come back in the past few years, and it was highly tied to, to China. And now with some of the um, trade war constraints and with, you know, the actual fact is that, uh, you know, China's in, in a bit of a depression at this, at this point, not a depression, but a slowed economy, um, even though it's growing f- fast, you know, to our standards. The fact is red oak has, has dropped to a point in inflation adjusted dollars, the lowest it's been in 25 years mm-hmm. in, in, in the lake states. So you took a species that was king. In the 90s, and you just watch this ride that it's been on. It 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 helps you know force managers understand that markets are cyclic. They're not 
they're not cyclic the way they used to, they, they used to be. Global forces are Im- impacting these uh, species, so it's really difficult to plan 5, 10, 15 years in advance. So foresters land managers have to be more nimble. They need to have management plans and, and, and take advantage of opportunities when they're there. Um, that might be moving your management plan or your harvest timing a little bit to try to capture markets. So having a savvy forester that knows those markets can help because if the forests aren't profitable, um, it's going to be tough to keep them forest long term. Where do the private lands play into the Rough Grouse Society mission, Ben? Well, I mentioned earlier, private lands are are really important, even if you never get to set foot on right. that piece, right. because across the landscape, they're they're producing wildlife that that disperse, and those habitats are really important. In fact, of all the things that we talk about, the number one number one threat right now to wildlife is loss of habitat to development. And places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, we lose on average three to 400 acres per day of habitat to development. Uh, this is things like residential development, you know, parking lots, Walmarts. Subdivision. Yeah. Parcelizing. That is everything. the biggest threat. All these other things we talk about, West Nile and this, that, and the other thing, uh, the biggest threat is absolute loss of that habitat. So private lands are really important, and it's a focus for us to figure out how to tie into this concept of working forest mm-hmm. and to promote it and to communicate, to mass communicate with people about the importance of their private lands for wildlife in the bigger picture. And uh, for us to build our network, we've got here in Wisconsin, we've got two forest wildlife specialists that visit with private landowners, helping them lay out management plans, conduct timber harvests, find their ways into NRCS programs like for cost share that can help them manage their forests. So we want to expand that network as well. There's a lot of opportunity there. I think uh, Pheasants Forever provides a great framework, what they do with their farm bill biologists. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an expansion that there's certainly room for uh, with us on the forest side of things too. But private lands are incredibly important. Yeah, Ben, I know that you, one of the goals of Rough Grouse Society is to communicate with people outside of our circle, if you will, Mm -hmm. meaning meaning what has long been rough grouse hunters. And just keeping in mind, this is the project up on podcast. So we have, we have a very biased listenership (laughs) here, right? So, I mean, these messages are important and and hopefully the people listening to this feel more educated and, and are more up to speed on timber markets and what forces are at play as, as I am now. But is there anything that you want the upland bird hunter to take away from this or be armed with as they're having conversations with people? Well, of course, we're all ambassadors. Yep. And I I am certain that many of your listeners hadn't thought of the timber industry and the importance of forest product markets mm-hmm. in this way before. So hopefully there were, there were a couple of ah moments during the podcast. Yep. And then over the next dinner conversation over a beer or whatever as the ambassadors – you know, they're they're talking about these things with their friends. But in addition to that, I think we need to get really serious about communicating outside of our tight-knit network yeah. and really coming up with a mass communications plan. Um, you know, this is 
everybody wants to find something that goes viral, but really to get our message out to a much broader cross section of the public. Right. Uh, you know, our save the whales moment for forest yeah. wildlife. Forest, could it be paper straws? I don't know. <laughs> Did you ever use one of those damn things? Yeah. No way. Uh, last, last time I was in Minneapolis, it, it appeared to me that every establishment I visited has gone full-on paper straw. So, Right. That's just part of the puzzle. It needs to be bigger than that. Right. Right. Yeah. But there is opportunity there, you know, and things come into the public's eye and, and you see these opportunities yeah. that to get in there and the concerns over plastics is a very real yeah. one right now. So beyond just straws, when you think of the market potential for packaging, moving away mm -hmm. from plastics and toward renewables, recyclables, biodegradables, like paper products from our forests, yep. there's, there's, you know, there's something there. There's a lot of growing interest as there should be in, in wood as an alternative to concrete and steel too. Yep. Mass timber. Right. Yep. Right. Mass timber is a, Huge opportunity to have a kind of a revolutionary look at another outlet for for wood, and um, it's a good alternative to some of the impacts that those other uh, materials can have, as well as again just supporting an industry that's using a renewable resource and providing habitat all at the same time. And we need to keep an eye on potential markets that emerge that could be negatively impactful for wildlife too. I, I think that's really important. Just like anything else, you know, you're not putting all your yeah. all your trust in one entity, be it government or corporate America or industry. There also could be some markets that come along um, that leads to plantation plantings or something like that that we wouldn't necessarily support because it sure. wouldn't be good for wildlife. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I imagine that we kind of half-jokingly mentioned paper straws, but imagine the conversations that are being started as people sit down somewhere and all of a sudden there's a paper straw in their cup. <laughs> I hope so. If somebody's yeah. listening to this and you now know, I mean, imagine the opportunity you might have to educate your business people at the meeting or whatever to tell them, hey, you know where this comes from. This is renewable and sustainable. So I, I hope that people look for those opportunities. I know I certainly do, and, and as I am uh, – better and better educated from having conversations like this. I, I definitely share that if, uh, if the opportunity arises. So we haven't talked a lot about upland hunting on this podcast. And I kind of joked these guys before I said, you know, we've never, I've never apologized for diving deep on conservation and having these, having these conversations on the podcast and nobody's really ever called me on it either. So I think people are generally pretty receptive to it. So hopefully yeah, we don't great. get a bunch of hate mail after this one, but uh, we're going to, we're going to close it up with a little bit of a uh, little bit of fun, more uh, up and hunting conversation. We're going to, we're going to go around the table a little bit. Uh, Forrest, this will be for all you guys, but we'll yeah. start with Forrest. Uh, the gun the shotgun that you pick up most often when you when you hit the woods because we didn't cover this, but Forrest uh, is a he works in the timber industry, but he is an avid avid grouse hunter. Yes, yes. Well, I, I you know I, I caught the the fox bug and the vintage shotgun and the 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 Ithaca doubles you know, bug probably about ten years ago. Yeah. But the gun I've been grabbing the most is a 1920 um, a Fox A grade 20 gauge. Um, 26 inch barreled gun um it's it's a short gun i've got <laughs> i got all kinds of ways to make to, to lengthen it depending on the day but <laughs> i just like it it shoots it's it's a fun gun to shoot yeah 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 brand how about you man well I'll, I'll tell you i'm in the market for a new one but i uh i endlessly 
uh, analyze and overthink these decisions. Oh, yeah. So I have I have a a twelve gauge side by side Western Field firearms shotgun. I think it's about a nineteen fifties era. Um, they were made by Ithaca, but they were sold back when you could buy a shotgun in a department store like Marshall Fields or something like yep, that. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty much my indestructible. I my uh, my growing interest in bird dogs and upland hunting came at the same time I had a growing family and a growing uh, educational commitments and everything as well. So I was looking for low maintenance, durable, and that's what's provided for me. So sure. yeah, but I'm uh, I'm in the market. I gotta lighten up a little bit to uh, uh, have something a little bit more amenable to my long carries that I tend to do with uh, well, with that being an RGS guy, you you got some connections with. I got some access, yeah, but you know that's what they call what is that the um, um, the paradox of choice or whatever that is. <laughs> when you're overwhelmed with options, right. then you can't make a make an option. So for now, I'm just using old reliable, and it still knocks birds down for me. So I'm happy. Ben, how about you? I'm going to do a bit of a shameless plug here. Last summer, I was in the warehouse at. HQ and uh, one of our VPs, Mark Fouts, said, "Check this gun out." So I got I this I thing saw out. This happen. It it was our gold sponsor gun for this year for our gold sponsors, and so I gave it a try. And you can see this gun in action on the Public Grouse film mm-hmm. done by Project Upland in partnership with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. But it's just a little. Uh, SKB 690 with RGS engraving has a grouse on one side, woodcock on the other. 28 inch barrels on mine. It's a 28 gauge or, or 20, gauge. 20 gauge. And um, I'll tell you what, I really enjoyed carrying it this year, and I'll be carrying it again. But it's it's the 2020 gold sponsor gun for RGS. So people listening can get it. All they got to do is gold sponsor a bank. That's right. That's a All sweet right. firearm you get. All right, get at the Duluth Superior Banquet. Call me up. I'll get you hooked up with it. <laughs> I might uh, might be willing to walk, auction off my Western Field too. <laughs> there could be an opportunity there for someone. Uh, all right, one more forest yeah. pair of boots that you strap on most often, and we'll say we'll say when you're going rough grouse and woodcock hunting. Yeah, I uh, a, a plug for Russell Moccasin. I, right. I had I guess Ooh. I customized a pair of them about eight years ago now, and had, they got them resold this past year. Um, Wisconsin Woodcock company, right? TLC, yes, yep. Southern Wisconsin Woodcock uh, or company, but yep. yeah, that they're awesome shoes, light. Put a lot of miles on them. Yeah. Um, for me, probably toss up between the lacrosse love, rubber boots um, and uh, LL Bean, uh, the kangaroo leather upland mm-hmm. boots, depending on the conditions where I'm going. Yeah. Most often for me, I am throwing on my Danner elk hunters. 400 grams and if it's slushy or gross then i'm going with my lacrosse alpha burley 800s gotcha all right gentlemen one more time around the table any last uh thoughts conclusions and then if people want to find out more about what you do or websites or anything like that have at it yeah sure so um i i don't don't know if i said where i where i worked but um i work for stegerwald land services out of tomahawk wisconsin uh you can find me on our website at stegerwald.com um, happy to talk about uh, industry, grouse hunting, anything you you could uh, want to ask. Cool. Brent? I think last thoughts are just thanks for having me for the most part. Ben, thanks for having me at the Rough Grouse Society. It's a great great job, great opportunity. It's um, an organization I feel very passionate about. 
You can certainly find me online at the Society's uh, website, as folks do. Um, also, feel free to enter membership magazine. I've had very few. I've had a handful of folks contact me. I write the uh, a quarterly column in there mm-hmm. on our policy initiatives, and that could be kind of some egghead related stuff. We try and make it engaging so people see what we're doing on that front. So, also uh, offer up any uh, members and any listeners. Um, Get a read on something you like or something you don't like. I have questions about getting in touch with me about that, too. Always looking at making that as useful as I can for, for readers. Uh, Brent always appreciates the policy intel that we get from members. Like, did you see this in our state? And, of course, right. you know, Brent, it's tough to keep track with everything that's coming through state legislatures. Mm-hmm. And so he always appreciates an email or heads up about um, pertinent policy things that uh, we might get engaged in. Members so, are plugged in. Yeah, uh, so I, I would say uh, we have a membership promotional out right now. Right. Our Forest, Our Future, got a really sweet hat and a shirt. Yep. And you can go to our website and check that out. Uh, you can, uh, it's like tracking Rudolph. You can keep track of uh, where I'm at by following me on Instagram. That's yep, yep. at Ben Jones underscore Forest Wildlife. See where I'm at in my little 2008 Toyota Yaris zooming around the country. <laughs> Although I flew into here, it was a bit too far to drive. Bucks you filled the tank for eighteen dollars, and that fill up <laughs> will get me four hundred miles. That's insane, man. That's why we call it the Timber Doodle. Yep. You know, the Eastern Flyway. These birds have been shown to fly four hundred miles in a night. That's <laughs> that's my little Yaris. Beep beep. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you got to get the horn altered to it so it's yeah. actually a peent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sean Curran said he's he's gonna uh, find someone to underwrite a full on rap so it I actually looks like say, a workout. That has to be <laughs> in the future. Oh, oh yes, I'm pretty sure Sean can get that sponsored. But check out our promotional so maybe some. Someday I can get a big boy vehicle, but uh, help support the movement. Um, we're, we're doing our best here to increase our conservation impact and uh, go in good places. Appreciate your support as always, Nick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us. As always, you know, loyal listeners of the podcast know I'm a devout member of the Rough Grouse Society and I love what you guys are doing and what, you know, it's way bigger than the people in this room, but I appreciate you guys coming in and and sharing the work that you are doing and I appreciate it. So roughgrousesociety.org, at roughgrousesociety on Instagram, check them out, sign up. Our Forest, Our Future campaign. Thank you guys, Forrest, Brent, Ben. Thank you so much for joining me on the Project Upland podcast. I will do it for this episode. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Quick reminder, the Project Upland podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonubo Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, CZ USA, Turnbull Restoration, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is leave us a rating, leave the podcast a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or send us some feedback or guest suggestion. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.